Welcome, market participants. Another three things in credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. Another day with red all over our screens, right after the strongest GDP print in nearly 40 years, and Apple earnings that are of a world unto themselves. Feels like a correction. All right, let's get started. This week, our three things are, one, Powell's even more hawkish pivot. A more aggressive tightening stance introduces additional risk into our outlook. Two, stocks versus bonds. Why has credit held in relatively well compared to equities? Powerful sell-off. We'll explore. And three, the all-important U.S. consumer. We'll canvas three big consumer lenders' Q4 results for insights into just how durable he and she is. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. The Fed's balance sheet and credit. A mainstay in the Fed's toolkit since the GFC is QE, buying securities to stimulate the economy by driving down interest rates and stabilizing fixed income markets. The Fed's bond buying has nearly doubled its balance sheet over the course of the pandemic era to nearly $9 trillion, with a T, dollars. And somehow the Fed continues to buy more, but that's another story. We know the Fed is scheduled to taper its purchases, eventually to zero, raise interest rates, and run down the portfolio in that order. That was reiterated in Wednesday's statement. We also know the Fed will monitor closely market reaction with each step it takes, not because it is in the back pocket of markets, but because market sentiment is something it monitors as part of its mandate to maintain price stability overall. But we were taken back a bit during Powell's press conference to hear him say, maybe too candidly, that, quote, there's an element of uncertainty around the balance sheet, unquote. Uncertainty in terms of how markets will react to unwinding the balance sheet, which the chair admits is substantially larger than it needs to be. The Fed has shrunk its balance sheet before, most recently in 2018, in an effort to curtail inflation that never materialized. This time is different. Inflation is here, and the balance sheet is much larger, but the economy is stronger, so it seems that the Fed intends to move more aggressively this go-around, in terms of both speed and size of the unwinding, because the threat is more clear and present. So we go back to the uncertainty around the unwind. If inflation proves to be even more threatening, more aggressive tightening, including balance sheet runoff, could happen. And that could significantly widen Treasury and agency spreads, with the latter in particular becoming more attractive relative to investment-grade corporates. And depending on how quickly rates rise, the tightening could also widen credit spreads. We still believe that the Fed will closely monitor market reactions and adjust accordingly. Another Powell pivot? But it may be in more of a box this go-around. All right, on to our second thing, stocks versus bonds. I'm sure I don't have to remind you that we're off to a rough start in stocks in 2022, with the S&P 500 and NASDAQ both in correction territory. The Fed's more hawkish stance, the intensity of which continues to grow, has kneecapped the appeal of growth. As I heard Howard Marks say, higher inflation means higher interest rates. Higher interest rates means lower asset prices. Well, that explains, theoretically, why long-duration assets like stocks, especially growth stocks and small caps, have sold off. But what about credit? Sure, high yield in particular has not been immune to the downdraft in markets, but that has as much to do with the rise in rates as investors taking a more cautious fundamental view. 
We always pay a lot of attention to what happens with stocks because of the close correlation with credit. But there are some important differences that can explain why we haven't seen selling in credit along the lines of what we've seen in stocks. The first is liquidity. Although index CDS and large credit ETFs like HYG and LQD have boosted liquidity in the corporate credit market, it remains difficult to move large blocks of credit when your views change, something that is especially true in volatile markets, which is typically when you want to adjust your risk profile. The second reason is credit is simply not as sensitive to news flow or a penny of EPS the way stocks are. Default or downgrade risk rolls with far more punches in many instances compared to stocks. So I had a conversation with a research director this past week who warned credit is next. And that begs the question, what would break credit? There could be a number of catalysts ranging from a spike in rates to a geopolitical event to a market shock, say in energy. The common thread running through all of this is that default risk, really tied to recession risk, has to bounce materially higher off of extraordinarily low levels we see today. While that is certainly possible as we look out to 2023 and 24, but still relatively low probability in 2022 because much of the consumer and business strata and sectors are in solid shape heading into the great deceleration. All right, on to our third thing, a strikingly strong consumer. We use that word strikingly because it's a bit unusual to hear in the hidebound world of earnings reports. But that's the word Capital One CEO Rich Fairbank used four times in his company's Q4 earnings call when describing the condition of U.S. consumer credit. Although Mr. Fairbank is the only lending executive to use that term to the best of our knowledge, similar sentiment has come from virtually all corners of the consumer credit space. This is important, of course, because consumer spending and credit worthiness are outsized factors playing into just how soft a landing the U.S. economy will undergo in 2022 and 2023 as we normalize post-stimulus. In addition to Capital One's earnings report, we thought we would also check in on American Express and Ally for insight into the all-important U.S. consumer. Starting with Cap One, the first thing you see is robust credit card purchase volume, up 28% year-on-year. And that's with travel and entertainment still impacted by the pandemic. And then there is credit, where Mr. Fairbank commented that Quote, in all my years, I've never seen anything quite like what we have been through with consumer credit in the last couple of years, and it's still strikingly strong, unquote. There's that word. To give you an idea, the credit card loss rate in Q4, Cap 1, was 1.49%, 120 basis points better than a year ago. We just don't see loss rates in credit cards this low. It is, well, striking. In the auto portfolio, similar performance. Fourth quarter losses were just 58 basis points, roughly a third of what they were before the pandemic. Now, super strong recoveries due to sky-high used car values is part of the story, but it really speaks to the strength of the consumer. Normalization is coming, which will affect loan balances positively as unusually high payments come down. And yes, loss rates will bounce higher. But this will take some time to play out which suggests that the U.S. consumer will continue to spend aggressively in 2022. Over at American Express, a similar story. The company reported record levels of spending on its network in both the fourth quarter and full year 2021, with total network volumes and build business volumes both up more than 10% relative to 2019. 
T&E spending continued to improve, reaching 82% of pre-pandemic levels. Management expects total global consumer and small to mid-sized business T&E spending to fully recover by the end of 2022, though it will be slower for large corporate and international spend T&E to recover. Management expects revenue growth to be significantly higher than normal in 2022, 18 to 20%, due to, quote, a range of pandemic recovery tailwinds, unquote, still at work. As far as credit goes, Amex's portfolio was characterized as outstanding, with key bad debt metrics near historical lows. Over at Ally, the large auto finance-oriented bank, it characterized its credit performance as remaining very strong, supported by what it calls robust job prospects, ongoing wage expansion, and the strongest customer balance sheets observed in decades, all of which help mitigate inflationary dynamics. It did note that the pace of credit normalization remains up for debate, adding that it expects a return to normal gradually over the next two years. We take comfort in this color that the U.S. consumer is well-positioned to continue to spend through 2022, powering through the headwinds of mounting inflation and decidedly downbeat sentiment seen in various polls and surveys. A little, make that a lot, of retail therapy is just what this economy is going to need. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, Powell's even more hawkish pivot, his capitulation to the part of the market that believes tightening is long overdue, suggests that he has adopted a tamp-down inflation at all cost view, which may increase the prospect of a policy error. Two, stocks versus bonds. Credit should prove to be more durable than stocks through the great deceleration. And three, the all-important U.S. consumer, with the exception of those in the lower income brackets which figure to be hit hard by fading benefits of stimulus and rising inflation, the U.S. consumer is well-positioned to cushion the U.S. economy as it normalizes. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research. For those of you in the Northeast, enjoy the blizzard of 22. Me, I'm headed to Arizona to speak at the largest bank conference of the year. I know I'll see some of you there. See you all next week.